Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, is over. Art is pain. Life is suffering. Jonathan, what have you done? To dream the impossible dream. There's no escape for you. The high table wants your life. To write the unwritable wrong. Tell me what you want. Passage. I can't help you. To reach the unreachable star. Do you expect him to make it out? A $14 million bounty on his head. And everyone in the city wants a piece of it. I say the odds are about even. Dark in five seconds. John Wick, excommunicado, in effect, in three, two, one. And away we go. All right, Andy, it's John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. Mmm, the extended title. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. I think they just, uh, I think they found the Latin quote and liked it. They liked it so much they titled it and say it in the movie. And say it in the movie. (laughs) It is one of my bits of frustration in the movie, and no typographical alteration doesn't change that. The fact that the original quote is Parabellum, not Parabellum does not account for the fact that they use the title in the script, and I hate it. That's dumb. I I wonder if that's why I gave this a four-star review when I first saw the movie instead of five. Well, here's what's interesting, Pete, and uh, maybe this will change your mind. I don't know. Parabellum, as you said, is civis passum parabellum, the uh, Latin quote, um, if you want peace, prepare for war. But since then, 1902... Uh, they named a cartridge designed by Luger for the Luger pistol. It was a 9 by 19 millimeter cartridge called the Parabellum. And it's all one word. That doesn't help. It does, because this is a film in which a lot of gunplay is used. And so the fact that they combined it here, I think, is actually quite clever because it uh, references the weapon as much as much as the Latin quote. Okay. But they say the Latin quote in the movie. Yeah, I don't really care about that. They don't say John Wick <laughs> Chapter 3, Parabellum. And no, that's usually that's your true. frustration. That is usually my frustration. That is usually usually it. They don't say anything about chapters, although there is a significant sequence in a library. So that's something. They what they also um, there is no reference to any of the bands named Parabellum. There is a Colombian band, a French band, a Russian group that performed at the Eurovision Song Contest, a Japanese rock band. There's an um, Argentine uh, song, and there's another song by Hate Eternal, also Parabellum. It is um, popular in uh, naming songs and naming bands. Apparently, well, it's a cool word. It's a fine word. I'm I'm all in on the word as it exists. It's fine. Yeah, but yeah, to to the the point I suppose is though 
This is the only film, at least up to this point. Again, John Wick Chapter 4 has not opened in theaters at the time of our recording. And I don't think it's going to have a subtitle. It hasn't. It has not had any in any of the marketing. I guess we'll just wait and see if they surprise us when the movie actually opens. But at this point, Chapter 3 is the only one where they decide, you know, instead of just saying Chapter 3, we're also going to throw in this word. And that's, I suppose, why it ends up feeling a little wonky. Yeah. Well, this is a movie that further expands the universe of John Wick. We have just so many assassins, still a lot of assassins, and apparently they're all fanboys of John Wick, which is also great. Uh, He has done a great job of building a community of assassins that all eagerly uh, anticipate both his friendship and killing him. And so... That's pretty much the universe of John Wick, Parabell. Well, when this movie came out, it was rated R for pervasive, strong violence and some language. Okay. Um, the first thing, just to get it out of the way, I, I'm, I am a big fan of Lance Reddick uh, and Lance Reddick um, passed away this last week as we record this since our last recording. And um, he obviously uh, plays the role of Sharon in this, um, in the Sharon, in the, the, um, in the Continental. And it is really, really sad. I'm a big fan of, of Lance. I know you, we were talking briefly a bit ago and you don't have quite the Reddick um, uh, catalog under your belt, but uh, I, I feel like between the wire and fringe alone, um, Lance Reddick and I became very best friends, and uh, it's sad to see him go. He went at sixty, and, and that's too early. Yeah, uh, we're we're really too young. close to really, sixty really for that to feel comfortable. Yes, absolutely. Um, I definitely enjoy seeing him when I do see him in, uh, in whatever. I, it's it's been much less than you, primarily just these John Wick films. I did watch some of the Wire. I've never finished it. Uh, he was also in Oz, right? Wasn't that something else where he was big in? Maybe you know, Oz was not one that I ever picked up on. I didn't oh, I have HBO you did at for the some time. reason. Okay. I did some of it. I did some of it. I did like the first, probably the first season. But I never, I never. It's the same thing with Orange Is the New Black. Like I watched some of that and and didn't watch the rest. So I I can't say I'm a huge Oz head. Well, regardless, it is terribly tragic that uh, we did just lose him. I mean, he was in the middle of doing uh, promo tours for this movie and, or for, sorry, John Wick chapter four. And so it's, I mean, it's just tragic, uh, you know, at such a point that, uh, that he ends up um, passing away. So certainly rest in peace, uh, Reddick and your, our our thoughts are with your family. Yeah. Okay. Um, So let's talk about John Wick chapter four. When we left John Wick or John Wick chapter three, when we left chapter two, I had uh, I hadn't I I told you I hadn't seen this one as often as I'd seen the first one or even the second one, and that I looked at my letterbox rating and I was nervous because I had given it a four star instead of a five star, um, and so you know how is it going to hold up? Uh, you I believe have even less feelings toward this movie going into it. How'd you feel watching it? Uh, I don't know if I, less feelings um, is, <laughs> is that a good way to ap- measure feelings no, less it, of them. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> uh, I mean, I just I'd only seen this the one time I'd only seen the second film the one time initially in theaters until watching it for the purposes of our show here. And so this was my second time returning to the third film. And um, I'll be honest, I quite enjoyed it. In fact, I 
This might be shocking, but I think I enjoy it more than the first or second films, what? which may what? be backwards to how most people view these films. But I just had a really fun time with this movie. That is amazing. Well, I also had a really fun time with this movie, but I do have some things in the movie that that were I found a little bit uh, frustrating. So uh, I'm I'm anxious to get into it um, a little bit. I would like to start with uh, bad rain effects. Because that is the first thing that takes me out of the movie is like the opening four cuts are New York City in the rain. And they're so clearly a filter uh, that uh, it uh, immediately I, I think, OK, let's go back. It's there. Let's let's go back and find a rainy shot that we can actually use or create one. <laughs> I know that's just, just became I didn't even know I had feelings about bad rain effects until uh, I saw these opening cuts. But. Uh, then we get into the movie, and boy, does it pick up uh, right where we left off. Yeah, and just going back to your complaint about the bad rain effects, you know, visual effects are hard, Pete. And I know. I, and it's four shots all within, I don't know, the first 20 yep. seconds of the film. Even less than like, that. I know. I'm... If that's going to take you out of the movie, then, you know, I'm sorry, but that's just like, I guess you weren't ever in the movie. But you're you're not even in the movie yet. We're just starting. So, Yeah. Well, then we get into the movie. So here's Mr. Wick. We find him immediately uh, after he's left uh, the chapter two. And now he is on the run. He still is within his hour of time that Winston had granted him. And he is, uh, you know, we keep seeing cuts of eyeballs on the street, watching him, tracking him, seeing where he's going. You get a little bit of uh, the TikTok man catching him in an alley. And then he makes his way to the doctor, which we had seen before, Randall Duck Kim. And uh, because he, oh, no, I, I take it back. First, he goes into the library because he needs to get uh, some stuff out of a book that he's hidden away. I, I don't know why he has to ask the librarian. I assume he knows where that book is because he he cut it into it and put stuff inside of it. So I just kind of assumed that he is very specifically tracking the location of that book as opposed to needing to ask the librarian. But regardless, he does. He goes to the book and he gets um, some, um, a, you know, a, a, a marker, a coin, a, uh, a cross on a, on a pendant, like a rosary sort of thing. And, uh, there's a picture of his wife and he, um, you know, gives it a kiss and everything. And this is where we get our first fight because Ernest, the giant, uh, NBA player, uh, decides, Hey, you know what? No one's going to know if I, attack you early so let's go at it and this is our first fight in the library and pretty much sets up what we're going to get with this film which is a really brutal brutal fight that just ends in oh ooh, just awful it's just awful but fully enjoyable it's exactly what the uh we were talking about last week which is every fight that we see is fuel for another story of the Baba Yaga. You know, I saw him kill a guy in a library with a book. Right? Like, it's that's you could totally hear that story <laughs> told later, and I think it's amazing. So, uh, I really oh, love this. I love the setup. It's 
oh God, it's really horrifying the way they handled the neck flop and everything. It was just awful. Um, and the fact that once again, this also sets up the fanboying that we were talking about earlier, right? The, the guy already is like, yeah, I know it's a lot of money, John. I know you, John. We've hung out probably at the Continental and, and had drinks together, John, but I'm gonna have to get that money by killing you right now, John. And um, and I, I, I think that's really great. I think it's really great. Yeah, and then the, it's like essentially a curb stop, but with yeah. a book and oh wow yeah it's i mean but it's a fun fight and i like that in the scope of the fights in this film there are definitely a lot of similar sorts of fights with just shooting and you know the basic stunt work that we've seen throughout but we're also getting some pretty gruesome kills throughout the film and it's kind of it's fun to see how they're really kind of shifting up that level of things in this film because we have some between this fight and the very next fight we have some pretty horrific ways for people to get killed that just um uh, just make me queasy to watch but, but it's just <laughs> it is it is an awful lot of fun um and you know and this uh, i do like that we're setting this up with these people like you said these fans of john who everybody seems to like him nobody seems to want to kill him but they're all doing it because 14 million dollars that's an awful lot of money and uh, and even when he goes to his very next person the doctor because he does get stabbed in the shoulder by Ernest, and so he needs to get stitched up and it's all happening within like minutes of when the clock stops and then the doctor is unable to finish and the way that that plays is fantastic how the doctor stops how john has to finish fixing himself and then the, uh, the doctor tells him where some pain pills are and then he acknowledges you know you're gonna have to shoot me once is probably not enough <laughs> Just because uh, he doesn't want people to think that he helped John. And the way all of that plays, the way John so quickly just shoots him to get it over with, like all of that is just like, I mean, this film sets things up in such a perfect way. I just I have a great time with the start of this film. I, I want to step back just a little bit because I think this was. Was this was the library fight before or after we meet Mansukas in the alley? I think he's running in the alley is the first shot. He says, tick tock, John Wick. Yeah, right. Mr. Wick. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I want to bring up Mansukas only now just so that we actually can call back later at the end of the film. So, uh, TikTok Mr. Wick, he's one, he works for the Bowery King and he's in, he has a really nice watch and he's sitting in some trash. Another, a, a typical type of person that the Bowery King represents. Yes, for sure. For sure, for sure. So, I, I guess the fights, you know, this movie, now that he's excommunicado, it's, it's some of the things that we saw in the last movie is he's he's running away and everybody's, you know, looking at their watch. And here we open and the clock is ticking down to the 6 p.m. It, it feels like we're moving into some seriously like this. This movie celebrates the arbitrariness of fights because everybody's after him. And as we've discovered, everybody in the John Wick universe is an assassin, that there is a little bit of suspension of disbelief that um, we're just going to be fighting and shooting a ton. And that's that's OK. Like, that's that's part of it. And I, I had to get myself out of the out of my head a little bit because it felt like so many of the of the fights were they're so good. And there's such a celebration of incredible stunt work. And I think Keanu is doing an incredible job of playing injured and exhausted over the course now of of consecutive three movies. And yet it's just a sort of concussive uh, repetition of fights that start to feel early on a little bit disconnected. Um, and so 
I love it. I, I think I'm able to disconnect that, but I did notice that um, that that this feels a little bit arbitrary compared to the first two movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can get your point in the sense that they are. It's just you know assassins trying to kill him one after the other, as opposed to common going after him because he killed his ward. Or yes. yeah, or uh, Ares going after him because she's protecting um, uh, Santino. Things like that, where there's a specific reason why the fight is happening. Whereas here, it's just like th- this is essentially what we're watching is the montage that we had in the last film of just a bunch of random yes. people deciding to get John. Here, the difference is. We get to watch all of those fights. It's not in a montage. (laughs) It's just like fight, then fight, then fight, then fight. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, and I, I think that's, I think that's fine, but it's a thing I notice that, that this is like, I have to get over the, the fact that this is a celebration of stunts and not the most complex nor necessarily interesting story. And when we do get into story, it's, it's a little bit, I, I don't know. It hits me sideways. Like as soon as he he gets to the point where he actually is going through the ropes of of removing the excommunicado from his head, he wanders through <laughs> wanders through the desert and meets a guy who makes him cut off his finger. And then after doing all of that sacrifice, he comes back and ends up not making good on it, not making use of the fact that he's you know in fact. Um, free of being excommunicado by choosing not to kill Winston. Uh, and so all of those the, those things sort of contradict one another in a way that at least makes me think, John, come on, now I'm questioning a little bit of what you're, of what you're doing again. Well, but this, I think, goes to, um, you know, when I was cheekily complaining about the first film about the fact that they killed his puppy, and it's just like he had the puppy for less than 24 hours. Come right. on. Right. <laughs> He's going to go through all this just because of this puppy. Um, but as he says in this film, it, was, it wasn't it was just the fact that it was a puppy. There was so much more to it. And I think that's what's going on here when he gets that assignment from the elder. And uh, the assignment is you have to kill Winston to right your wrongs so that you will be back. And uh, because it's not just killing Winston, it is you have to kill Winston and then you will be working for the high table. You will be one of our men, and that's going to be your life, the rest of your life. And it's the conversation that he has with Winston when he goes back to talk to him at the Continental and to actually follow through when Winston says, you know, you have to look at this, John. Is this who you want to be? Uh, because I didn't think that was what that I didn't think that was who you wanted to be. And that, I think, is the point of that entire thing is, John. You know, he's he's willing to go through all of this so that he can stay alive and keep the memory of his my, a wife alive and everything. But that is the reminder that he needed, that there was a reason that he stepped out of this business. And it if he goes back into it just to uh, just for all of this, then it's the wrong reasons. And it's not going to he, he would never end up being satisfied with the reasons that he ended up alive by that point and so for me i found that uh to work quite well and then the fact that winston turns around and kills him 
or shoots at him at least. I think that speaks very specifically to Winston and and his role in this um, world because I don't think that he has the same feelings that John does. So I found that logic very strong. I I think I I it's not that I don't see the logic. It's that it happens so fast. I feel like it's unearned. Like I feel like those those twists are unearned because the of the passage of time and pacing. For me, that doesn't hit me as solidly as it sounds like it does you. But I I want to hold that la- that question uh, until the end when we talk about the Winston's turn because I think it'll be important. Before we get there, we do have I, I think before. Our our main antagonist shows up. We do have a ho- the horse chase. Uh, <laughs> I want to get your take on the the horse chase, which I thought was exceptionally cool. But it feels like in reading up on some other others, you know, reviews of this movie, it's the horse sequence that is easy to lampoon in chapter three. Did you share those particular feelings? No, and and you know, I guess you know, speaking to a lot of the fights, I thought that was fine. I thought that was a fun addition, and that's something I definitely appreciated. And you know, per your point about the fights, uh, you know, not necessarily feeling like there was any specificity as to why, other than the fact that it's just different um, assassins trying to kill John. I really liked that they were doing a lot with each of them through this whole opening pretty much up until he kind of goes to Morocco. Uh, I I enjoyed that they were giving us so many different feels for each of them. And so, you know, we go from the library fight to the fight in the antique shop. And, you know, he goes through all that work to get that gun put together just so he can use one bullet. And then it's a, then is this crazy knife fight of these people as they're throwing knives at each other. And it's, it's like horrifying and, and awesome in the way that that plays out and the kills in that are, ugh. There are just two of them that just are so disgusting. Uh, they just make my skin crawl. And then we go into the stables, and then John has this magic power with horses where he gets them to kick at just the right time, which really made me laugh. And then he goes on the ride, and 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 then there's the motorbike chase. Like there's there's so many different levels of each of these uh, uh, the fight scenes that I didn't have any problems with it because they were doing things differently. And in the scope of what we're getting out of the world of John Wick. I just I found, you know what, they're giving us something new each time and we're finding different ways to make it exciting. So I I, I had a great time. We meet Angelica Houston as the director in the theater. And this is where things start to at least it, it feels for pacing. This is a chance for breathing. And it all happens when, uh, you know, the assassins, they're doing the the they're dancing and then the assassins. Uh, John Wick shows up to her first to say, hey, I need a ticket. And so they. She says, "Okay, I'll punch your ticket. And they brand him with an upside down cross on his back, uh, which is, again, fantastic bit of like assassinry mysticism that I really like and tradition. I think it's super cool. Um, And so his whole thing is like, get me out of this country. Send me to Casablanca in uh, retribution. The adjudicator, I think, is shows up and gets a sushi chef who's also an assassin, Natch. And he goes and we have the great sequence where they're all dancing with the director and the assassins walk through the spotlights in what I have to say is one of the coolest, most dramatic entrances in the movie. I love it so, so much. I want it to be my desktop wallpaper of my soul. It's a great moment for sure. I like that the director um, is involved. And this is another thing. And, you know, we should just to the point of the director, um, certainly this whole idea of the theater that she trains these Russians in 
will become a key part of the TV show ballerina that they are developing. So that's definitely an element of this world. And it honestly felt very much like Marvel's uh, The Red Room as far as, you know, training these Russian spies. Yeah. And that kind of made me laugh. But to your point, Angelica Houston, she's always great. I love seeing her. I mean, I, I don't think we've really talked about her probably since Prissy's Honor. It's been a very long time since we've talked about something that she's been on. Yeah. It's been a long time. Uh, But she's great here as the director, as the woman who basically had taken John in. We learned that he is from Belarus and we get Jordani, you know, get a sense of his backstory a little more. And yeah, this whole idea of this ticket, I, I don't know. I think the rules of this world are intriguing to me. And I, it's, I don't know how. I think that there is some interesting complexities and maybe just maybe they're gray areas even within the world. But clearly, there is this ticket that John has that she feels she has to honor and and he uses it to get to Casablanca. And in return, she says, you can never come back. And that was essentially the deal that they had as far as he had his ticket. He punched it. Um, or she punched it for him and then he left and she granted him his wish. But at the same time, it's not completely okay by the high table, even though it seems like it is something that is part of the world where, well, if you have this, you have to honor it. It's almost like the little blood, um, the blood oaths that they have that you have to honor this. But then it's like, would... Uh, would Sophia be considered working against the high table because she honored her blood oath? Like, I, I like there are levels of oaths that people swear, and it does make you wonder, like, what the hierarchy of the oaths is. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I feel like every promise is a is a promise that could lead to your death in this universe, like whether it's a blood oath or a ticket or a whatever. Like, I don't I almost think that it's safer to assume there is no hierarchy. They're all equal. And the repercussions are all terrible if you don't do a thing. Right. Well, it's like like in the last (laughs) film, like we had in John Wick Chapter two, you know, he had a blood oath that he owed to Santino and he has to follow through. And so Santino has him kill his sister uh, Gianna. And in the process of doing that, he follows through on the blood oath. He kills uh, Gianna. And then Santino says, I have to, you know, you killed my sister. I now have to avenge her. So my people are going to kill you now. And so it's like that thinking that's like these levels of oaths that like you, you follow through on this blood oath, which I wanted you to do. But now that you did, because she was my sister, I have to avenge her. And so I now have I have to her, kill right? you. It's like, what? Do, it's like, this is just a world where you'll never end up on top. Like, you're always taking yourself deeper every time you follow through on something. Yes, uh, that is absolutely true. Because Angelica Houston sure has to pay her price for uh, for helping John. Oh, yeah. Like, and, and that was another thing in this movie that I think was new from the last movie is this pledge of fealty that they, they keep doing over and over and over again. Like, they have to take it out loud. And for her, it was present your hands in fealty. I have, I, I, what, what are the exact words? I have served. I, I will continue to serve something like that. Like, I'm of service. I will continue to be of service, something like that. And she has to hold her hands out together, palms together in front of her, and they stab through both hands with a katana and, that's legit painful. <laughs> just so bad to imagine what is going on with her. Can we talk just a little bit about the adjudicator 
Ah, uh, yes. Are you familiar with the fantastic Asia Kate Dillon? No. Ugh, man. So I think it was before this. I'm trying to figure out. So I a little bit of Orange is the New Black. So um, Asia Kate Dillon played uh, Brandy Epps in Orange is the New Black. But also Billions. That's where I first discovered uh, Asia Kate Dillon because uh, they played a... Uh, it was the first time I'd seen an, an openly non-binary actor playing a non-binary character that was written super solidly. Like, uh, and and I think there was there was probably a little bit of spectrum disorder in uh, or, or neurodiversity spectrum uh, written into the character. Uh, incredibly cool character on the show Billions. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And you know, then seeing them in this particular uh, movie, I think they have such a great and diabolical conjuring a real sinister look on their face that I think makes uh, uh, makes for a great character. I like the idea that there's this representative of the high table who speaks with great authority on the, uh, you know, all issues of the high table as if the high table is one organism. That's a cool bit of, of world building, that the adjudicator exists here to make decisions without having to call in any requests for uh, instruction as the high table. The adjudicator is the high table. And for our purposes, that's really all we need to know. Right. I mean, is that kind of what you get out of this performance? OK, this is one question that I had. Yeah, I, I think their performance is it works, fits the part well. I don't think there's a lot to it i think we pretty much get uh like the the angry you know bad cop sort of character out of the adjudicator but i do find them really interesting and i think asia kate dylan plays this character um perfectly because it it does exactly what the character needs to do is i don't think there's a ton to it but i do enjoy the way that it plays out but my question is this and this may be something that we just don't um that I don't know if the I don't know how it's going to end up feeling. I, I guess I guess it's probably not a big thing that they're worried about by this point in the franchise. But my recollection, and I didn't go check, but my recollection in the end of chapter two, the fourteen million dollar bounty that you know originally Santino had placed seven million dollar bounty on John Wick, he gets killed. My recollection is that the, I believe it was the Camorra, the Italian mafia puts, like they double it and put the $14 million on John. Not the high table. I believe very specifically in the film, they say the Camorra doubles the contract on John and then he gets excommunicado and all that. And so the, the Camorra was headed by Gianna and then Santino after Gian after he killed off Gianna and then he gets killed the Camorra is this Italian crime family and they had the seat on the high table one of I think 12 seats on the high table but now the start of this film it is no longer the Camorra that has the contract on John it is the high table that has the contract on John and so I just I don't know if there's a way for us to clarify this but that was my understanding. And so I guess I was a little confused at the start of this film when suddenly it was the high table that now has the contract on John and is after him and they have the adjudicator pursuing him and all this sort of stuff. Any, I don't know, any thoughts on that? I, I don't think it ever stopped me this one, because I guess I assumed that by way of the by extension in chapter two, the Kimura and the high table are one and the same. 
but they clearly aren't because how many seats did they say? Because remember, there was like certain families had like, we have two seats on the table. They have two yeah. seats. And I know they were talking about like X number of seats. And there was that one guy who uh, came up a couple times, uh, Oconee, Mr. Oconee, who wanted a seat on the table. And so I don't know. I guess I just felt like that was a line of thinking that I wanted a little more clarification with. Well, and that's that's what I'm saying. Like, I know. I know that they are they are not. But in terms of the bounty on John, like when the family says we're calling the bounty, then that is odd because of their position on the high table, that that becomes the position of the high table. That's that's how I put it in my head. And that's why they all were able to in this movie just agree that this is where we are. It's the the high table hates John and they're going to go all in the and, and that honestly was not the problem for me in 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 this movie in particular, like they want John gone. They, they don't like the fact that John killed somebody in the continental. And therefore, because McShane's character let John go, he became uh, a target for as management of the continental. And that takes us to a war in the continental. Um, And the fork of that story is the Continental has problems with the adjudicator and therefore the high table. And John goes on a vision quest. And that's where things start to get muddy for me. Like, did you did you feel any of that? You know, in the scope of what we're getting out of this crazy world, I, I understand that this is the point of contention a lot of people have with this movie. But for me, it's just like, of course, this is what's going to be next for John. It's like, <laughs> why is this not going to happen? It's like, this is exactly the sort of story that we're getting here. I mean, is it odd that any of this happens? It's absolutely odd. And now we have the elder living out in the desert and John has to wander the sa- sands yes. <laughs> until uh, in, in hopes that the elder actually comes and finds him and of course he does and it's Saeed Tagmudi who we love talking about we love um and i i you know it i don't know in the scope of this world it's just one more nonsense thing that i really had no issues with because it's just like of course there's somebody else above the high table because why wouldn't there be and of course he's out in the desert and john has to wander through the desert in hopes of finding him all of it just seemed to be in line with this bonkers world that they've created. And so I really didn't end up having any issues because um, it just like this whole thing is so fantastical. I just uh, it's just one more thing. And so I get it. It, it, you know, drives some people nuts. But for me, it's just like, yeah, I'm not surprised that this is what where we have to go. (laughs) I, I feel it. And I feel like the, the challenge that I have is not one about what is happening, but it's how it's paced that we get there. I feel like it's just paced in such a way that there's no time for anybody to think, hell, give me a montage of John being back in fingerless now and, uh, or missing his, his, uh, wedding ring finger. Uh, what a, like I guess power move by the supreme leader <laughs> to take John's <laughs> wedding ring, but off the back, the knuckle side of his finger is that's a power move, and he just puts it in his pocket. That's a that's crazy. Uh, but the fact that John and as I said before, that John goes through all this trouble to get back into the into working for the high table, and then immediately immediately goes against the wishes of the high table. That's the part that 
that I, I get frustrated with. And I totally get it. And your point is well taken. You're absolutely right. Why should I expect anything different from this movie that is just a freight train of action nonstop? And we, I feel like we kind of need to go back because we're missing one of the central stunt sequences, which is the fight in Casablanca and Halle Berry. Uh, I mean, that, that was a great fight. That was a great fight. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is at Barada's place. He wants her dog. Uh, he, he agrees that he'll kind of, he gives John the information so that he knows he needs to go wander in the desert. But then as payment, he wants her dog. And of course, he, she won't give it to him. So he shoots the dog. Luckily, her dog's wearing a bulletproof vest. And that sets off, um, yeah, the centerpiece uh, fight. I don't know. I guess I don't know if I'd call it the centerpiece fight, but it is one hell of a fight action sequence that we get here of the two of them. This is Keanu Reeves and Halle Berry. Uh, they're taking down um, Barada and all of his men as they escape his compound. And it is so, I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful fight. Part of which is because aside from the two of them doing the yeoman's work as far as all the people they're taking down, we get her two dogs, her two Belgian Melanois, uh running around attacking as well. And that just like really brings things up to another level with this fight. It was so exciting. It's just such a great fight to watch. These dogs are incredible stunt performers. I mean, they're incredibly Holy well-trained cow. agility dogs. Yeah. The stuff that they have to do and uh, how uh, incredible it is that she is able to, in the context of the scene, call the dogs and get the dogs to do stuff. The the shot where, I, I mean, it, invariably there will be a close-up on one of the human performers and they will... Uh, be somehow uh, accosted by a villain and the dog will like jump over a car behind them or jump off of a ledge and suddenly be there to rescue uh, by like hanging on to genitals or arms or stomachs of a of a, a, a bad guy. It is e- extraordinarily great. But when the dog, she calls the dog and it jumps off of her back and launches up the side of that building is extraordinarily cool. That was just a great, great thing to do with a dog like these I, I hope these dogs were well compensated and live in a house high in the hills because they deserve every bit of, <laughs> yeah. of praise. It's, it is a centerpiece of this film. Absolutely. Absolutely. I bring it up because it's interesting, it seems like, and I'm sure there is a lot of digital manipulation in, in the film cleanup and all kinds of things throughout the film. But the the one sequence that I thought was interesting in listening to Chad Stahelski talk about it is the motorcycle sequence on the Verzano Bridge, because that is a massive composite CG stunt sequence. And it's one it it is the the biggest digital sequence that they have ever done in a John Wick franchise. Who knows what we're going to get in in four. But I'm really curious how it, this the this largely CG sequence hit you. Well, largely CG, it's really the environment around them and and making them look like they're going fast. Because uh, when you watch the behind the scenes, I mean, it's really interesting to see the, Super interesting. the you know, uh, Keanu and all the stunt people on motorbikes that are on like a green screen stage with green green screen people like just basically moving the bikes back and forth and then you know in the movie they actually cg the movement of the wheels and they're just here to kind of create the movement between bikes and then and then allows the actors to kind of just do their movements and everything and it's really a fascinating watch to see how they did this and so 
I don't have issues that they're doing this this time. I mean, they're still doing it in really long takes and they're allowing these scenes to play out and they make it look like, I mean, you're seeing these actors, uh, you know, working between each other on these bikes as they're doing things. And so it's just not at speed. And so I, I, I don't have huge issues. I, I find it to be as interesting as the rest, especially because they already have so many other fight scenes that they're doing, um, in in real like they're really pulling off a lot of the stunts in these other things so the fact that they do this i just you know i don't i don't have any issues with it it's not like they committed to making this film and only doing real stunts ever you know the movie that this is and and they talk about this being a an homage to this particular movie scene and i don't think i've seen the movie was it villainous what was the movie that they based this off of? It was a movie that they both had seen. Uh, Stahelski and Keanu had seen this movie, and they thought those motorcycle that motorcycle sequence is absolutely incredible. How did they do that? I don't know. Let's figure it out. So they got all the stunt performers in, and they started actually trying to recreate so many of the stunts that were done in this original film. Yeah, the villainous. Uh, thank you, uh, Brian, in the chat room um, for the live stream. They were trying to just sort of recreate it because it was so amazing, uh, and ended up saying, you know, what the hell, let's just do, let's do our own scene, uh, because this is just too cool to leave out. And they ended up making the sequence. I, I have no issue with it, because as you said, watching the behind the scenes, watching how they made this, this sequence is as extraordinary as a practical sequence could possibly be. I mean, it is, it, it is, requires such an extraordinary lift, such a huge swing of ingenuity and uh, complexity between the stunt performers and the even the little green wagons that they're dragging the motorcycles around on, and to overlay that into the the Verrazano Bridge uh, footage. It's it is extraordinary. It is a feat, and uh, I I think it's fantastic and should be celebrated. So uh, it does make me want to go back and watch that other movie. I haven't seen it, and um, so uh, it's on on the list. It's a, it's a great movie. I honestly, weirdly, don't remember that sequence from the movie, but I do remember a lot of other sequences from that movie because they have some incredible stunt sequences throughout the film. Like, the opening stunt sequence is incredible. There's a one on the staircase, kind of like going up this grand staircase. Uh, really fantastic fight sequences throughout that film. Definitely a film worth checking out. The, the film I remember referencing or them referencing with this particular film wasn't that, although it, that doesn't surprise me, but it was, um, it was the opening library fight because they were, um, inspired by Bruce Lee's, uh, game of death when he fights Kareem Abdul Jabbar. So that's why they wanted to get another NBA player in there for that opening fight. But that was the only other thing that I know that they had done because they were um, wanting to kind of pay an homage to something. I uh, I just brought up the clip of the villainous motorcycle fight. And in our efforts to talk about, uh, you know, homage last week, I think this is exactly that. And they admit it. I'm watching this sequence and it's extraordinary. This is an extraordinary motorcycle shot uh, scene. And I could see why they would get a bunch of guys in the room and try to recreate it because it's absolutely uh, wonderful. Uh sequence so uh on the list in the scope of fight sequences i you know i just want to make sure that we talk about my favorite one which is the the final fight in the i don't know why like the administration center of um the continental is like this glassed in 
thing looks yeah. like it's from some future movie. But it is a super, super cool location. And I I found that this final fight, um, it I, I don't know if the fight itself is my favorite, but the location is fantastic. And this is where he goes up against first uh, two of Zero's men. And these are two of our our actors from the raid films we have Saseparif Rahman and Yayan Ruyan as Shinobi number 1 and 2 yep. and they uh, he has this fantastic fight uh, uh John does between uh, or with these two in this place that's all glass and everywhere you look it's glass 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 and interestingly like some are glass panels some are like more mirrored and you can't see through them and so there's that fantastic shot when he's talking to Zero on the other side of the glass and they walk and then suddenly Zero disappears it's like i don't know it was such an interesting location and it allowed for some just beautiful movements and the way that they kind of constructed the scenes and and shifted from floor to floor and space to face space i absolutely loved the look of this it fit this world so well and all of these kind of this uh, neo slash neon noir that they've kind of been trying to create here i love I just I loved it. It was such an exciting location. And Zero was an interesting kind of final villain to have to fight, which in the scope of people who are, you know, fanboys of John, Zero certainly fits the bill. So what did you think of this final location? Uh, well, I love it. I, it allows so many uh, fights, lights of hand, so to speak, because uh, of the number of times in the sequence between the last the two of them at the end, at least, um, they're able to fight, 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 punch, 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 kick, kick, kick. And then one of them disappears. Right. And shows up in a reflection or on the other side of a pane of glass. And uh, you can and, and especially John in this case. So we I think we see zero do it once. And then John does it three or four times toward the end of the fight as he sort of takes control of the fight and uh, and uses that as the further perpetuation of the Baba Yaga uh, sort of thing. Like this is a guy who just shows up. He's just he's mystery. He's he's able to vanish. And, um, you know, using that in the context of the fight, I thought was really smart uh, and, and made for a, a, a thrilling uh, final sequence, particularly the anxiety that goes with watching two guys fight on glass or some sort of <laughs> like clear substance watching them throw their bodies around and then make good on the promise of that anxiety by watching the floors crack underneath them i think that was really great um and and adds to the that level of threat that that they're fighting using the environment against them using the glass against them as they keep falling through uh these floors and finally that final conversation they have after John has run him through, run zero through with the with the katana, and they're sitting on their knees together. John's not on his knees, but um, zero's on his knees, and he says, "John, hell of a fight." Yeah, uh, I thought that was what a great way to end that conversation, right? To end that that sequence is it, it's it's a weird sort of neo honor, right? That that they get to have for for having the fight you get the feeling that zero was uh honored to be killed by one such as john wick and and that was communicated uh to me super clearly i liked it i liked it a lot it plays really well and it just made for a, a great you know final fight here that you know it it also kind of ties into what you were you had mentioned earlier how the Continental had been under attack by the Adjudicator and all of these people that they had sent to close this place down because they had marked it uh, uh, de 
decommissioned. What was the term? Not deconsecrated. Deconsecrated. And so they come to this agreement, this temporary agreement that, you know, because they kill all of these people, but the adjudicator says, we'll just keep coming. You know, you're not going to be able to stop them. And that kind of builds to this um, this final confrontation. And that's when Winston kills uh, John or shoots John. John falls off the roof. And I guess that speaks to, uh, you know, intentions at this point. And um, I don't know. I I kind of read this as as much as there is a friendship between Winston and John. And Winston convinces John to not kill him because John wants more out of life. I don't necessarily, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see where things will play in John Wick Chapter 4 with their relationship. But I kind of see this as Winston acknowledging, I've never been you, John. I am one of these people. The Continental is me. I am the Continental. And I will do what it takes to to keep this thing running. And so, I don't know. I read that final moment as Winston being true to who he is and uh, acknowledging, I'm going to have to kill John Wick. Well, and that is a question we obviously can't answer. The other side of that is that Ian McShane is pulling a Willem Dafoe, which is and and you posted in the in the member chat that, uh, you know, we have Willem Dafoe saying, oh, yeah, he was a friend. I don't think he ever intended on shooting John. I buy that. I totally buy that. But it does make me wonder if we're going to get a Dafoe uh, uh, sort of parallel in McShane that he knew Wick was wearing the bulletproof fabric suit that he was gambling with John life that he could maybe get them all out of this situation and and um, and get to the end and that you know the intention of the adjudicator at the end as they walk down the stairs and get in the car and then second guess and go back in the alley to see where john fell off the building and find that he is not there that becomes the setup to this potential narrative which is that possibly mcshane you know thought okay um, maybe I can get us all out of this if John survives and I'm going to, you know, do what I can. I don't know. I, I I feel like I could go either way on it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, although it does certainly at the end of the film when we see that John had been rescued and you had mentioned by the by the TikTok man, we see this is that moment he comes back into the story because he had picked up John's body taken him to the Bowery King. And the Bowery King, this is the scene where we see that John is kind of alive. He's he's holding on just enough. And the Bowery King is pissed at the adjudicator for everything that they came to do to him to shut him down. And John is pissed. And so both of them are pissed. And they are basically joining forces to uh, to fight against the presumably the Continental and the High Table. So and that's where we leave things. It's a, it's again a great setup for another chapter. Are you looking forward to John Wick chapter four, Andy? Yeah, I am. I, I mean, I think it's interesting. They've been setting up a very interesting world here. And I, like I said, I know some people really um, didn't care for some of these elements as far as like the, the elder and John walking through the desert and all of this. But I, I don't know. This world is becoming so monumentally like, uh, crazy with all of its rules and its levels that I am finding it more and more fascinating. Like, I'm curious if the Elder is going to play into Chapter 4 and we're going to get more dealing with that side of things because now John has not only pissed off the high table, but I'm assuming also has pissed off the Elder as far as these these things that he's, uh, these rules that he's breaking, these deals he's not following through on. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, it it feels I, I I can't figure out is you know we we talked a little bit about gas in the tank. How much gas is left in the tank for for this uh, this particular line in this franchise? There's so much good world building going on, but the the thing I have to remind myself is so far these movies pick up the the next one picks up right where the last one left off. By now, John is exhausted. Like how much he as an actor, he just keeps aging year over year over year. As a character, it's we're only six, seven hours into his night, right? Like, uh, uh, apart from, I mean, we imagine time passes, uh, I guess time passes on his trip to Casablanca. Like, that's compressed pretty heavily. He goes from New York, he's in Casablanca. So I guess there is. I, I believe there is a point when we're, uh, I, I can't remember if it's the adjudicator talking to the Bowery King or to Winston, because the adjudicator gives them a week seven days to wrap up their affairs before they have to leave. And we see the end of that seven days as they come in to shut them down. And and then, so I think that it's been at least a week that he's been gone. And I feel like it might might be even a couple weeks. So it's it's in that realm of time that, that we yeah. this story takes place. Short, short, in, in terms of, of beating on a guy. Well, and I mean, John Wick Chapter Four. I don't know the the scope of time in which that takes, but we they have already said that there is a John Wick Chapter Five in the works. In fact, they were going to shoot four and five back to back, but I think COVID kind of shut that down, so they just opted to do just Chapter Four, and they'll do Chapter Five. Um, I, I I don't know. I am assuming at some point. I just don't know when they're going to start, but I'm guessing that that's potentially as far as they're going to go. What's uh, so uh, just in terms of of tea leave reading, we have uh, Keanu obviously is back. We get Donnie Yen and uh, Hiroyuki Sanada and Rina Sawayama uh, adding to the cast in John Wick Chapter Four. Um, but Bill Skarsgård is in it. Obviously, uh, Lawrence Fishburne is back. Uh, we get also Clancy Brown is going to make an appearance at some point. Very excited about that. The Elder is played by George George Yu. Don't know if it is the same, uh, supposed to be the same character, the Elder. Um, but that will be, if not, you know, maybe there are multiple elders. I don't know. Maybe this one lives under the sea, but it looks like a fantastic cast. The trailers I've just really been, um, been excited about. And, um, you know, again, as many issues as I have with this movie, uh, boy, it does connect with my 15 year old brain. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm excited about talking with, talking with you about John Wick chapter four. It has, um, a different writing team. Derek Kolstad is no longer involved in the writing, which makes me a little nervous. Um, Shay Hatton, who had written or been one of the four credited writers on chapter three is back this time. Um, Michael Finch is the other writer who is new to the franchise. So to that end, I am curious why the shift, you know, what, what is it that, um, led to this and i guess we'll just have to see how john wick chapter four plays as far as how it's written but yeah. um yeah certainly a lot to be curious with that one so all right um all right well that is it we'll be right back but first our credits The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ace, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and the numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, 
imdb.com and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right. Out of do it award season. Tell me those dogs win something. <laughs> the, uh, you know, in the world of stunts, of course, it's going to be recognized at the Taurus World Stunt Awards. It was nominated for Best Fight. This was when John Wick and Sophia engage in the fight in the streets of Morocco. The actors and stunt performers take out guards with guns, knives, judo, hand-to-hand combat, and attack dogs. But it lost to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is a hard one to argue. Three home invaders enter a home and a fight ensues. A stunt woman has a can of dog food thrown at her face, causing her to fall flat. A pit bull attacks a stunt man and then is called off and sent to attack the woman who is still lying on the ground. The two men proceed to fight hand-to-hand, with the male intruder being finished off by having his head stomped on. The second woman then attacks the man, but he smashes her face around the room, including a telephone and a wall. A dummy was used for the hits to the mantle and the death blows. After the dog releases her, the first stunt woman runs through a glass door and ends up in a pool. She's then set on fire with a flamethrower. No CGI was <laughs> Use <laughs> that was yeah. quite uh, quite a, a finale to that. So anyway, they lost best fight um, and then best stunt coordinator and or second unit director. They'd won uh, Jonathan Eusubio, Darren Prescott, Scott Rogers, and Jeremy Vigo. They won that. So um, and then at the Saturn Awards, we love the Saturn Awards. Um, they were nominated. Three times for Best Action or Adventure Film, but lost to Mission Impossible Fallout. Best Actor, Keanu Reeves, but lost to Robert Downey Jr. in Avengers Endgame. And Best Editing, but lost to Avengers Endgame. I think it's a little bit sad that it didn't win anything, but man, Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, I know that's a tough one. But, you know, they I mean, 18 wins overall, 29 other nominations. They still were recognized in the field of awards. Yeah. Yeah, they did fine. How about at the box office? Well, the Wick team had another $40 million to make this outing. That's $47.2 million in today's dollars, so actually a decrease in budget when adjusted. Still, they managed to pull off a lot with what they had. This movie opened May 17th, 2019, opposite A Dog's Journey, The Sun is Also a Star, and the limited release of The Souvenir. The movie debuted in the number one spot, finally, and stayed in the top ten for six weeks before going on to earn $171 million domestically and $157.3 million internationally for a total gross of $387.5 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with a healthy adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $2.6 million, earning back more than eight times its budget and setting the franchise on solid ground to continue. Uh, I'm excited we're in this series because, I mean, in terms of movies that give me that exhilaration and that thrill, I think these so far were three for three, even if this one is slightly less uh, exhilarating than the last two for me. It's <laughs> it's an amazing film. It's definitely fun. I have <laughs> I am amazed that this is the one that suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm in this. I really enjoyed the movie. So John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, baby. There it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, now in theaters, John Wick, Chapter 4. Saying goodbyes? Saying hello. You think your wife can hear you? No. Then why bother? Maybe I'm wrong. You're going to die. Maybe not. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A 
new day is dawning. New ideas, new rules, new management. We've known each other since we were nine. Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. Win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does. Please pray for me. I was the black sheep of the family. Man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. I'm going to need a gun. Goodbye, my friend. It's hard to die. If you win, the table will honor its word. You will have your freedom. Under the old laws, only one can survive. Failure to meet at sunrise will result in execution. Last words, Winston? Just have fun out there. <laughs> I want you to find your peace, but a good death only comes after a good life. You and I left a good life behind a long time ago, my friend. Letterboxd, Andrew, you know Letterboxd. It's our favorite social media for movie lovers. And uh, we love it so much that we decided, hey, you know what? I don't want to see ads or stupid ads on my Letterboxd page. I want to be able to review my movies and put my uh, uh, watch list and diary up there ad-free. So I pay a little bit to get a, a pro or patron membership. And uh, you could do that too if you want to get rid of your ads uh, on your Letterboxd account. Uh, just use the code NEXTREEL at checkout. There's a little box that says, do you have a code? Sure you do, because it's NEXTREEL. And you'll get 20% off your upgrade to Pro or Patron. It works for renewals as well. What are you going to do, Andy? Is this Parabellum, is it, uh, a, is it a five-star film for you, finally? No. In fact, it's still <laughs> a four-star and a heart. But I still like it more than the other two. But they're all four stars and a heart so far. That's where I said. All right. All right. I'm, I am not changing mine. It is also a four star and a heart. Uh, I, I feel like it was, it was right the first time. It, it ain't broke. <laughs> it ain't broke. It ain't broke. That's right. Yep. Well, don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. So what did you think about John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd, give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. <laughs> Mine's a little bit long, but can I can I read it? Can I read it first because it's a little bit long? And it's from our, sure. our dear friend of the show. Demi Adijuibe, who uh, is our best friend, but doesn't know that. Um, <laughs> Yet. We love Demi. Yet. Caveats. Uh, 
Demi says, spent the first 20 minutes or so discussing whether or not the John Wick franchise could be considered a comedy. And while I feel like the dialogue leads too heavily into the drama action, so much of the physicality of these movies, especially two and three, is clearly designed to be as funny as it is impressive. I mean, how do you not scream laugh at the knife fight or the sheer amount of glass shattering in the third act? I giggle every t- every single time Keanu uses something new to smack away someone's hand right as they're firing a gun. It doesn't feel like it fits alongside any other movie you'd call a comedy or an action comedy, and maybe that's in part because it's been swallowed whole by the aesthetic of a My Chemical Romance video. But I'd just as soon put this movie on for a crowd-pleasing action-packed laugh as I would 21 Jump Street or something. Yes, it's too long. Yes, it's mostly people speaking in vague, suggestive dialogue like, not after what happened last time, and the table won't be too pleased about this. But man, they got assassins popping out of walls in plain sight. They got beautifully lit neon cityscape and an led set piece that asks what if the best part of skyfall was the was like 30 minutes longer they got some of the best most deliberately framed choreographed action sequences i think i have ever seen in a movie motorcycle sword fight looks like the wong kar wai film they got the tiktok man you know i love any movie with the tiktok man in it five stars from demi adjui bay wow well, I'm going to do two because you did that. Uh, that oh, was so okay. long. Yeah, please. Um, first one by Patrick Willems, who says, in all caps, I can't believe Keanu, spoiler redacted, with a spoiler redacted. <laughs> and that's only in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> um, I love it. But my favorite one is Matt Singer's four and a half. We don't talk enough about how the killer dogs have adorable widow doggy bulletproof jackets. <laughs> it's really true Uh, it is true but they are adorable (laughs) that is uh, so many of the action sequences are uh, keanu shooting close up we're really so intentionally shooting people in the throat to get away get around the bulletproof like armament and that was horrible i mean in a good way all right 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 thanks letterboxd I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.